All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the second edition of Human Geo in 20 Minutes. I'm your host, Mr. Linder. Happy to be back. Happy to be recording another podcast. As you guys can tell, um, I did not put any effort at all into the production value, uh, adding music, adding transitions, anything like that. I thought about it. Um, never got around to doing it, much like many of you when you're thinking about doing homework for my class. So that being said, uh, let's get into unit two, our review, which is on population and migration. Um, I'm going to get into depth uh, about a couple things um, with uh, population. We're going to get into a little bit of depth with the demographic transition model and with um, migration. We're going to talk a lot about push and pull factors. So I'm going to save um, those two things for the end of the segment and for the beginning, um, I'm just going to kind of fly through some of the other things that are going to be on your test. So let's start with population. Um, we've talked about uh, different types of densities, arithmetic density, physiological density, and agricultural density. Arithmetic density is the number of people per square mile, the number of people per square kilometer. Physiological density is the number of people per unit of arable land. And agricultural density is the number of farmers per unit of arable land. Um, agricultural density is not going to show up on your test. Uh, but with arithmetic density, remember a drawback of that is that like a country like the United States has somewhere around, I think it's like 67 people per square mile. Um, and uh, But if I zoom in, if I look at scale, right, the, the island of Manhattan where New York City is has like 70,000 people per square mile. And Amarillo, Texas, and the countryside around that has like 0.1 people per square mile. So those numbers are, that number of 70 people per square mile in the U.S. is really misleading because we're not looking at scale. Um, more importantly is physiological density. Physiological density is can I feed my population? So if I have a high physiological density, um, more likely than not, I can't feed my population or I don't have a lot of arable land. So I want to keep that number low. Um, either again by having a lot of arable land or having a, a, a lower population um, in, in that case. Uh, population densities. There are four major population clusters. I'm talking about peop, uh, regions where people are clustered around the world. Three of them are in Asia. Uh, I've got East Asia, which is like China, Taiwan, the Koreas, Japan. Southeast Asia, um, which is the Philippines, um, Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia. In South Asia, which is uh, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, uh, Bangladesh, and then Western Europe. Um, and those four population clusters, they differ uh, a little bit. The, ones, uh, the one in Europe is mainly people living in urban areas, and in Asia, uh, it's mainly rural. Even though um, countries like Japan and China and India have major, major uh, cities, the vast majority of their population is still rural. So that's the difference between those population clusters. Um, the rate of natural increase in different countries, the natural increase rate. Um, again, if you have a high natural increase rate, it means you usually have a growing population. It usually means you have a young population. Um, natural increase rate is affected by a lot of different things. Um, if you have a high literacy rate, if you have good health care, if you have a lot of rights for women, if you have women employed, um, if you have women that are getting educations, generally what that means is you have a lower natural increase rate because 
uh, in general, when women have more control over their bodies and they have more control over their reproductive rights, uh, they choose to have less kids because childbearing is in fact uh, A, quite dangerous and B, something that is quite painful. Uh, and so a lot of times women, want, when they are educated and they have um, more opportunities for jobs, they choose to delay when they want to have children. Um, so those countries that are more developed, countries like the United States, countries in Western Europe, countries like Japan, we see lower rates of natural increase because usually women have more opportunities. Countries in South Asia, countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, we watched that video where we learned about the some of the families in Northern India that were having seven, eight, nine, ten kids because um, they were trying to get more, more males in the family. Or in Sub-Saharan Africa, again, where women don't have a lot of access to contraception, you see a lot of uh, rates of natural increase that are a lot higher in those areas than you do in more developed areas. Um, looking at S-curves and J-curves in regards to population, an S-curve is going to show me a population over time. So if I look at a country that's in stage four, the demographic transition model, a country like the United States, uh, that population is going to be an S-curve. Um, but if I look at population of the world as a whole over time, from the dawn of man, wherever that, whenever that was, until now, that population curve is going to be a J-curve, and it's going to show exponential growth. We took however many hundreds of thousands or millions of years from the first man to the year 1800 before we were able to get 1 billion people on the earth. Since that time, we've added close to 6.5 billion people. So if we're looking at the population growth of humankind since the dawn of man till now, that would definitely be a J-curve, showing us that exponential growth. Um, Different countries have attempted to control total population numbers in different ways. Uh, China is uh, by far the best example with, a, uh, with their one-child policy. Um, unfortunately, that had unintended consequences where you had uh, parents who were either having sex-selective abortions if they found out they were going to have a female, or in some cases you had uh, lots of female um, babies who were given up for adoption or just abandoned or that sort of thing. So. Uh, in countries like China and India, where there is a male preference, um, you actually have a big gap between the number of males and the number of females that are in the country, um, which is not a, a good thing either. Um, so those have been some examples of countries trying to control their, uh, their total population numbers. Um, when we look at a country and we talk about its carrying capacity, we are talking about whether a country is able to sustain the population that it has. or not even necessarily a country, an area, a city, um, something like that. Carrying capacity is talking about whether a country is able to produce enough resources to sustain their population. Um, so if you are not able to produce enough resources, that means that your country is over its carrying capacity. Um, and technically what that means is if your country has exceeded its carrying capacity, then it means it's overpopulated. Overpopulation has nothing to do with the number of people uh, in any, any area. Um, again, you look at a place like London or Tokyo or New York that's very, very heavily populated, but in general, there, is enough, uh, there are enough resources to, to support those populations. In fact, um, I believe it's something like all seven point whatever billion of us in the world, if we decided to stand shoulder to shoulder in one place, we could all fit within the city limits of Los Angeles, California. Now, we don't want to do that because we'd be super claustrophobic and that would be a nightmare for everybody. But the point is that overpopulation has nothing to do with the number of people 
in an area. It has to do with the resources that are able to support that population. <clears throat> so there are certain ways that we can increase carrying capacity. Um, we can come up with better farming methods and agricultural methods to increase carrying capacity. We can also lower our population. We can lower our natural increase rate, which would increase our carrying capacity because there aren't as many people competing for those resources. All right, uh, doubling time is the number of years that it is going to take a population to double. Uh, we take 70 over the natural increase rate to calculate doubling time. Um, if you have a low doubling time, meaning like um, you have a, a short doubling time, like 20 or 30 or 40 years, that means your population is going to double very, very quickly. Uh, we read that article about um, Malthusian theory in the country of Rwanda. Um, Rwanda has doubled within the last 20 years. Um, so over half their population was not even alive during uh, the genocide that occurred in 1994. That's not a good thing when you have a short doubling time. It means that you're gonna have a lot of young people, it means you're gonna have a lot of people competing for resources and jobs. On the flip side though, um, with a growing population, it means that you have a, a lot of uh, working age or people who are about to come into working age. So theoretically, if you manage the growth correctly, uh, you could be growing your economy very, very quickly over a short amount of time, which is a, which is a good thing. Um, most countries that are in stage four of the demographic transition, they have doubling times that are in the hundreds. Um, that's generally where you want to meet, be. It means that you have slow but steady growth. Um, and it's not a drastic change over a very, very quick time. Um, total fertility rate is the number, the average number of children that a woman is going to have during her childbearing years, which on average is 15 to 45. Um, again, understand in certain cultures that kids are getting married earlier. Plus, you know, 100 to 200 years ago, women were definitely getting married, 14, 15, 16, and having children. Uh, but in the United States, obviously now, both culturally, um, and uh, politically, we, we have moved that, uh, that number a lot higher. Um, TFR, again, uh, just like our natural increase rate, um, it's affected by what women are able to do. And when women only have the opportunity to get married and have kids, most of the time they're getting married uh, earlier and they're having kids younger. And so natural increase rate and, and total fertility rate is higher. Um, however, when women have access to uh, contraception, and education and jobs, uh, they're usually delaying when they when they have kids, so total fertility rate is lower. Uh, a country wants its number to be right around 2.1. If your number, your total fertility rate is right around 2.1, that means that you are sustaining your population, you're not growing, you're not shrinking. A country like the United States, we are actually, over the last 20 years, we have been shrinking. Our number is right around 1.9. Um, that is all areas of our country and across all races and demographics. Um, we have a declining fertility rate. However, because we are a destination for migrants, our country has continued to grow. Um, most countries in Western Europe are seeing their total fertility rates shrink. Um, Japan is one of the lowest in the world. It's at like 1.3, whereas there are certain places in India, Sub-Saharan Africa, um, other areas of Asia that total fertility rates are in the three, four, five range, which means that their populations are drastically growing. Um, globalization is something that relates both to migration and population, and it's really something that relates to everything in this class. Um, but I guess we'll talk, I guess I'll talk about that more with, um, with regards to migration. 
so that looks like everything that I wanted to hit on for population, except for the demographic transition model. Um, I guess, oh, I did not get to Malthus, sorry. So Thomas Malthus was an English economist and demographer um, who was alive right around the Industrial Revolution and the year uh, 1800 when the world's population hit 1 billion. Um, and he talked about how world population eventually was going to exceed our ability to produce food and, our, and exceed our resources. And eventually when that happened, there was gonna be massive famine and war and turmoil and the world was definitely going to, or was going to eventually tear itself apart. Now that never happened. Um, population did continue to grow. Um, it slowed more than Malthus thought, but it, it definitely grew a lot in the 18 and 1900s. But what changed was our ability to produce food and our ability to produce resources. And we were definitely, definitely able to produce a lot more food than Malthus thought we were going to be able to produce. Uh, we have seven point whatever billion people in the world right now. And we produce enough food to feed somewhere between 10 and 11 billion. So our capacity to produce food has definitely increased. Now, neo-Malthusians would say that even though Malthus was technically wrong, that we produce way more food than we could possibly eat, there are still about a billion people every night that go to bed hungry. There is still famine. There is still widespread disease. Um, there is still war that checks population. And so... Um, in certain areas where we don't share resources um, evenly, where there is drastic differences between uh, healthcare and where um, in Sub-Saharan Africa, where HIV is still wreaking havoc and uh, you know, uh, flu and things like that are, are killing people. Neo-Malthusians would say, yes, we do have enough resources, but they're not distributed enough. They're not distributed enough because in certain areas, there is overpopulation. In certain areas, it's not sustainable. And so on a smaller scale, Malthus was right. And there are uh, people that are dying every day from starvation. And there are people that are dying every day from sicknesses that we have largely eradicated in the developed part of the world. So Neo-Malthusians would say that there are um, food has not been adequately distributed and there are other things other than food that check the population. Um, last thing with, pop with population, and you definitely got, uh, need to know this for your FRQ, is understanding the use of population pyramids understand that when they have a wider base and a skinnier top, they're usually talking about a stage two country. When it's relatively even throughout, you're talking about a country that's probably in stage four of the demographic transition. And we have a country that's top heavy, that the, the top of it is um, bigger than the, than the lower half. It almost looks like a tornado or something like that. That would be a stage five country. Now, there are advantages to being in different stages. And um, we need to kind of understand that in a stage two country, uh, you have a high dependency ratio, but you might have a big population that's moving into that working age. Whereas stage four, you have a steady population, but you have a population that's getting older. So the dependency ratio in the next 20 or 30 years might actually be increasing. So there are advantages and there are disadvantages of being in both of those situations. But we need to understand how population pyramids um, apply and how, how we can uh, use them and, and understand them. All right. Let's talk about migration. Um, so with uh, migration, the difference between push and pull factors. Uh, oh, I said I wanted to save that for the end. Sorry. Transhumance is a seasonal migration of livestock. Uh, when it's colder, I'm going to move it to southern latitudes or lower, uh, lower areas. When it's warmer, I'm going to move it to higher latitudes or I'm going to move, move my livestock up a mountain. And nomadic people are going to migrate with their livestock. 
what is meant by ecumene? Ecumene is the livable or the uh, habitable portion of Earth's surface. So the vast majority of Earth's surface is not um, ecumene. It's not area that's habitable. It's desert. It's rainforest. It's uh, tundra. It's you know something like that. Um, so we live on a relatively small area of Earth's surface. An intervening opportunity, if I am uh, moving um, to, uh, let's say from DC, I'm moving to New York City, and on the way I stop in Philadelphia and I fall in love with the city of Philadelphia and I get a job there, that would be an intervening opportunity because it happened on my way to uh, whatever point I was migrating to. Um, when has the United States seen the greatest immigration in terms of raw numbers? We've had a lot of different migration um, trends in our history. We had uh, the Germans in the 1820s and the Irish in the 1850s and the Italians and Southern and Eastern Europeans in the early 1910s. Um, but the, in terms of raw numbers, uh, it has been in the last 20 or 30 years where we've seen a large number of Hispanic people uh, and Latino people coming from Mexico and Central America. Um, let's see, what do we got next? Um, what are the different types of migration? I've got voluntary migration and I've got forced migration. Um, they're pretty straightforward. Voluntary migration, I'm moving because I want to move. I'm moving for a job opportunity. I'm moving uh, to be in a, a warmer part of the country. Um, forced migration, obviously you are being forced to move because of cultural factors, religious persecution, um, war, uh, lack of freedom. Um, that could be something like the slave trade in the 15th, 16th, 1700s. It could be the Trail of Tears with Native American groups, uh, but those would be uh, forced migrations. Uh, characteristics of refugees. Uh, refugees are often uh, younger. Um, they are often uh, children. Um, oftentimes, they are making their, uh, their movement by, by land. They're moving by foot. They, they don't carry... Um, documentation with them uh, because when you are a refugee you're literally being forced from your home and you just have to kind of grab whatever is around with you and so um, you grab some food uh, something like that uh, maybe a religious object but you don't you're not moving on a in a car or a plane um, you're not carrying uh, usually documentation with you um, and so those those are some of the characteristics of refugees all right, Ravenstein's theories on migration. Um, he was talking about how every migration flow creates a return or counter-migration. We have th hundreds of thousands of people that come to the United States from um, uh, Mexico and Central America. Uh, there are many people that leave the United States and go back to those areas. Uh, we also talked about how the great migration of African-Americans north to U.S. cities created a counter-migration of uh, white Americans out of those cities to suburban areas. Um, Zelinsky talked about migration theory related to the demographic transition model. So he talked about how in stage one, we're nomadic. We're following our food. That's where we get transhumance. In stage two, our country's industrialized. So within our country, people are moving from rural to urban areas, and people are also leaving that country and going elsewhere. And in stage three and four countries, people are moving from um, urban to suburban areas, and people uh, are also moving to your country. So your country becomes a destination for migrants, is what Zelensky was talking about. All right. Um, and then lastly, with globalization, we talked about how uh, friction of distance is reduced. Friction, uh, distance slows things down. It slows down interaction between places that are far away from one another. But globalization and the increase in technology has definitely decreased that. All right, so that is about 20 minutes, but we're going to go a little bit longer because we need to talk about the demographic transition model 
and we need to talk about push and pull factors. So the demographic transition model is showing how a population uh, grows and changes over time. Um, stage one, I have really high birth rates and I have really high death rates. People are dying because they're going to war. Women are dying in childbirth. Um, you're not living great lives. You're only living till you're about 30 or 40 years old, something like that. Um, that is the vast majority of human history. People were living in stage one. And so population didn't grow a lot. Women were having eight, nine, 10 kids, but only one or two of those kids was living to adulthood. So the population really wasn't growing that much. Um, when countries move into stage two, generally we say that they have industrialized. And when they've industrialized, it means they've created more mechanized farming. Uh, they've come up with um, uh, germ theory and they, they understand that uh, we need to have better medical practices and things like that. And because I have better food and better med medical practices, women are still having a lot of kids. They're still having like seven, eight, nine, ten kids. But instead of only having one or two live to adulthood, now I'm having like five or six living to adulthood. And because I'm having so many kids live to adulthood, stage two is where we see rapid growth. We see a drastic increase in the population. In stage three, um, city uh, p countries are starting to become more urbanized. People are realizing that we are living longer, healthier lives and that children are living into adulthood. And so women uh, decide to have considerably fewer children in stage three. Now in stage three, even though we're seeing the birth rate drop, uh, we are still seeing the population increase. And that is the phenomenon which is known as demographic momentum. Um, so again, population is still uh, is increasing even though the birth rate is dropping and people are deciding to have considerably, considerably fewer kids. Now stage four is where we get to um, even growth. We have uh, a high population because our population grew in stage two and three, but it's not growing anymore. Now the birth rates and death rates are almost equal, uh, but they're low. They're, they're not high. They're, they're both very low. Crude birth rate of like um, three or four crude death rate of like three or four at, at, out of a thousand. So um, people have decided to only have about two, 2.1 kids per family. So we're not seeing population increase. We're not seeing population decrease. It's staying steady. Now, certain countries like Japan that have seen their TFR drop below two, they have seen their population start to decrease. That would be stage five of the demographic transition. Lots of countries in West, Western Europe are in the same boat. They have a TFR that's below 2.1. So they would be stage five countries. Their population has actually decreased. All right. Um, lastly, push and pull factors. Uh, remember, I've got three types of push and pull factors. I've got economic, cultural, political, and environmental. The main reason that people move is jobs. So a push factor of not having any jobs in the area that I'm in and a pull factor of having available jobs. That is the, the vast majority of people that have moved from human history all the way through today move because of jobs. Secondly is cultural political. Um, a push factor would be uh, war, which creates refugees, um, religious persecution, an unstable government, um, a dictator, something like that. A pull factor, so something that gets uh, somebody to move to a place like the United States would be uh, freedom of speech, democracy, freedom of religion, um, you know, the, the ability to uh, vote, um, education opportunities for women, um, no persecution because of uh, gender or sexual orientation or something like that. Those would all be political, cultural pull factors. 
And then environmental push factors, something that gets you to leave an area might be cold weather, a volcano, a natural disaster, a flood, something like that. Um, and a, um, sorry, that would be a push factor. And a pull factor, a place that gets you to move somewhere uh, would be good weather, warm weather. It could be uh, beautiful mountains. Um, it could be a beach, something like that. Those would be environmental um, pool factors. Uh, just a couple other random notes that I wrote down. Uh, let's see, demographic momentum, we hit that dependency ratio. Remember, a country that has a large young population that's too young to work would have a high dependency ratio. Or a country that has a lot of old people that are too old to work would also have a high dependency ratio. Uh, brain drain is when you have a lot of young people that leave a country um, for education and they do not return to that country. So the, all the young, talented people are leaving that country. It happened to um, uh, Germany during the uh, Holocaust. It's, actually, it's happening to a lot of other developing countries now that, come, that send their best, best and brightest to the United States for education and they don't come back to those countries. And lastly is the population center of the United States. Remember, that's kind of the balancing point of where our population uh, is. In the 1790s and 1800s, it would have been on the East Coast. Uh, as our population has grown and moved over time, it's moved west uh, and south. So our population center now is somewhere in uh, Missouri or something like that. All right, so we're right about the 25, 26 minute mark. Uh, again, this has been human geography in 20 minutes. I am your host, Mr. Linder. I hope this was helpful. I hope all of you guys uh, do great on the test on Friday and Monday. Uh, everybody have a great weekend. Have fun. Be safe. Take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Above all, make good decisions. Study those population pyramids in regards to your FRQ. Know how to interpret them. And I will see you guys next time.